All right, let's open up our Bibles together to 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you do not have a Bible, I would encourage you to pick one up over on the resource table on the side wall so you can follow along with us. We are at 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you're visiting, uh, we are currently working our way through the book of 2 Samuel. So uh, we are uh, already eight chapters in. We're at chapter 9 today. So we are at 2 Samuel 9. Uh, We're going to read the passage as we go, as we go. Uh, Let's open in prayer, though, before we get started. Uh, Father, we come before you today. We thank you uh, that you are a God who reveals, uh, Lord, that you have spoken uh, to us so that we might know you and know you well. And and Lord, as we uh, look at today's uh, passage, we pray that you would help us to see uh, ultimately the gospel in it that you would allow us to, to see and relate on how uh, similar our situation is with the main character in this chapter. And we pray that you would be glorified through this time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Have you ever made a promise you didn't think you'd have to keep? Have you ever, uh, maybe you got caught up in the emotions, didn't think it would actually come to fruition, so you, so you made this vow, this promise, and then as it started to come near possibly being realized, you start thinking, what did I just do? I, I must admit, I am guilty of that sometimes as a parent. I get caught up in the emotions, I'm trying to inspire uh, my, my children, so I'll make these promises that I don't think I'll have to actually fulfill so it doesn't and every time my wife will look at me like what are you doing like stop like stop we have a a school contest that they do often at Toledo Christian it's called the great shake it's part speech part good manners it's a really neat contest and to inspire my two kids that have already been in it they were in seventh grade when you first do it I was like if you win the contest we will buy you a cell phone because at that point, we don't do cell phones usually, how kind of we do it age-wise in our house. And then there's Sophia. She makes the top 10. And I'm like, are you serious? Like, and luckily, like, I mean, I was rooting for her pretty much to keep going. Uh, when she was out, at, I think she got out in the top six, and she was a little upset. And I'm hugging her, and I'm also like, thank you, Jesus. I did not have to buy a cell phone. Uh, Right now, we're working through braces with our kids, and I've already thrown it out there. My wife's like, what are you doing? I'm like, whoever doesn't have to have braces in this family, you're getting a good gift. Not like brace-worthy gift. Like, I'm not paying another, but like, I'll give you a portion of the brace money. And like, so they're all like two two down. Josh is my, I think, my best hope so far. Uh, One other promise is we get those, uh, it's an envelope a mass mailing, and it's got a bunch of coupons in it. And for the longest time, it would say, uh, there is a $100 bill in one of these envelopes. So Josiah read it the one day, and I was, he's like, if I find the $100, do I get to keep it? I'm like, yes. And then like, I, I waited the day, though, when he opened that, and he's holding up a $100. I was like, I didn't really mean it. You see, it's easy to make promises to things that seem unlikely to happen, Uh, that you're never going to have to make good on them, that you're never going to have to deliver. But you see, God's people don't make promises like that. And God certainly doesn't make promises like that. In today's passage, we have a king who makes a promise and keeps a promise. 
And more importantly, we have a God who makes promises and keeps his promises to a needy, unworthy humanity. What we see in this passage is a glimpse of the gospel of Christ overflowing our cup with blessing in the life of Mephibosheth. If you're taking notes, give you a glimpse of where we're going. We're going to begin by looking at the heart of the king. We're going to see uh, David really being what we've already saw David was supposed to be. He is a man after God's own heart. And we're going to see that heart play itself out in real life, in real time, in our story today. Secondly, we're going to look at the homage to the king. We're going to see this worship and reverence in response to what David is doing. And then we will conclude our time by looking at the Hesed. The loving kindness from the king. So let's get started as we pick up at verse 1 and we consider the heart of the king. Now, if you remember last week, Pastor Andy taught us to be active as we wait on God's promises. That waiting on God does not mean idleness. It doesn't mean apathy. It doesn't mean we just sit around and twiddle our thumbs and just wait and wait and wait. No, we're we're called to walk out in faith. We're called to, to be active. We're called to live this life in real time. And that's what we see in chapter 9. David living out life in real time, keeping promises in real time. So as we see the heart of the king, let's read verse 1 together. As we see him keeping his word. It says, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, when we hear the name Jonathan, if you've, you've been here for our series, we knew that there was a very special relationship between who? David and Jonathan. That their relationship was so close, some have even speculated, even though there's no biblical reason to go there, that the relationship was inappropriate between one another. But that's not the case. What we saw, even when we looked at it, if you remember 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26, this was after Jonathan had died. David declared, your love, Jonathan, to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. So it seems like it would be possible, a logical conclusion when we read verse 1, is this is sentimental. David is missing his best friend. And as he's missing his best friend, he starts thinking about Jonathan. He's like, you know what? I wonder if there's any relatives still around tied to Jonathan that in honor of Jonathan, I can remember him by taking care of them. That's what we could chalk this up as. But that's not what's actually going on. What is going on is David is remembering a promise he had made. He had entered into a covenant with Jonathan. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14, read with me. It says, if I am still alive, this is Jonathan speaking to David, show me the steadfast love, the hesed, we're going to look at that again throughout the sermon, of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever. When the Lord cuts out every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So he enters into this covenant with David, Jonathan and him. And, and what we've learned with covenants, if you recall, is what they would do is they would, they would sacrifice these animals. They would put half of the, the dead carcasses on the one side, half on the other. And both people entering into the covenant would walk between those covenant, those cut pieces of, of, of animal. And what that symbolized is if we break the covenant, 
what happened to these animals will happen to us. So David had entered into a covenant with Jonathan, and he had promised what? That I will take care of you. I will not only take care of you, Jonathan, I will take care of your house, even if and when you are good. So what we see going on right now is David is making good on his promise with Jonathan. Now, it sounds great. It sounds romantic. It sounds sentimental. It's like, this is, man, David's such a good guy. But we need to also realize it's been about 15 to 20 years since he made this promise. Like you start wondering, you start thinking, is there kind of like a statue of limitation? There's crimes that you can actually commit, especially nonviolent crimes, that if you are not uh, tried for them over a certain period of time, you, there's a statue of limitation. You, you can't even do it anymore. Coupons, they usually expire. Warranties expire often in life. You can't take a gift card normally somewhere 30 years after you got the gift card and say, I would like to use this. And we don't take those anymore. And you see, it would have been so easy for David to think that promise was something in the past. I got caught up in the moment. I actually made a promise to Jonathan, assuming I would be dead before you know it. And I was just trying to get as much favor from Jonathan as possible. But he doesn't do that. You see, it would have been so not advantageous for him to do what he is about to do. Why is that? Because here was the protocol. Here is what you did when you took over the throne from another family. What did you do? You wipe it out. Wipe out the family. 1 Kings 15, 27 gives an example of this. So Baasha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And then notice what it says here. And as soon as he was killed, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He left to the house of Jeroboam, not one that breathed until he had destroyed it. So what would have made sense for David, the moment he found out there was still another one breathing in Jonathan's house, is to do what to that person? Kill him. Wipe out the threat. I look weak. I'm putting somebody as a potential threat in our midst. But you know what David is controlled by? Not by fear. David is not controlled by circumstances. David is controlled by faithfulness to his word. He made a promise before God and man, and he was going to deliver on that promise no matter what it led to for him. And isn't God the same way? Does God make promises he does not intend to keep? Is God worried about what his promises look like to the perceptions of man? No, he, he doesn't care. He doesn't answer to man. He doesn't care what man thinks. He makes promises. He delivers on them. He keeps them. So I have to ask us, are we keepers of our word? Do we make promises recklessly? I, I really am. And I know we were joking in the beginning. I'm trying to dial down my promises before my kids. So if I make a promise, I intend to deliver on that promise. So are you that way with life, with people, with coworkers, with family members, with friends, with neighbors? Likewise, do you rest in the certainty of God's promises? Because not only is he keeping his word, this heart of God. Giving is his way. 
Read verse 2 with me. He says, Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness, the hesed of God to him? All right, so David is doing one thing already that is the opposite of what kings would normally do. You find out that there's people from the other family still around. Most kings wipe them out. Okay. Second thing that most kings do is most kings are about who? Themselves. Themselves. They are, they're, 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 they're takers. And David, it's so weird, he, he seems to be a giver. Uh, we were over at Costco yesterday and they have uh, an arcade so young people, there was a time when you didn't play games on your phone and you didn't play games online with somebody. What you would actually do is you would go to a place called an arcade to play an arcade. And there are these like big giant box, like a TV and this like thing. And they're selling like an NFL Blitz one. My mom's like, would you like that? I'm like, yeah. And my wife's like, no. <laughs> my kids are like, yeah. Well, the, the one game I used to love playing was really it's such a simple game, Pac-Man. And if you know what I'm talking about with Pac-Man, here, here he is. He's, he's going around the screen, and he's trying to eat up the dots. And he's trying to avoid uh, the, the characters who are trying to get him. And every time you clear all the dots, you go on to the next level. And you, you want to keep going up the levels on Pac-Man. That is the life of a king in the ancient Near East. Eat up all the dots. They wanted more land. They wanted more power. They wanted more resources. They wanted more women. They wanted, and they were takers. And God had warned Israel. Do you remember that? Do you remember that in 1 Samuel? 1 Samuel 8. He said, these will be the ways of the king who reign over you. Verses 11 18. He will take your sons. Da, 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 da. He will take your daughters. He will take the best of your fields. He will take the tenth of your grain. He will take your male servants and your female servants. He will take your donkeys. He will take a tenth of your flock. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves. So God warned them, you're going to get a king and he's going to be a taker. And they had Saul. And guess what Saul was? He was a taker. But now we have David and David seems what? He seems different. At least at this season in his life, he's, he's different. He's not a taker. He's a what? He's a giver. He realizes that he is in the position as king to be an instrument for the king of kings. He understood it. If you recall two weeks ago when we were in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and we were looking at the Davidic covenant, it was tied to one of the earlier covenants in the Bible, the Abrahamic covenant. And God had told Abraham what? I'm going to give you a, a land. I'm going to give you a people. And you're going to be a blessing in Genesis 12 so that you will be a what? You're going to be a blessing to others. I'm going to bless you so that you can bless others. And David is starting to get it. David, even right here in the passage, what does it say? Who can I show the kindness, the hesed of God to? In other words, who can I be an instrument of God to? He viewed himself that way. He's selfless. He, this is where we see David. This is the best of David, I would argue. This chapter is probably the best of David. 
God's heart shining through David. It's really a glimpse where we see David almost probably the most Christ-like. Because what kind of king of kings do we have? Is Jesus a taker or a giver? He's a giver. Philippians 2.2, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but whose interests are we supposed to look to? But to the interests of others, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Our Savior is a giver. He has given. He's given his life. He is giving. He's given us a spirit, and he will always be giving. That's the way of Christ. Matthew 20, 28. He did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. Well, how about you? Are you a giver or are you a taker? Are you a consumer? Are you a provider? Are you selfless? Do you look for your own interests way too much? Because I think the natural tendency of our heart is what? It's about me, myself, and I. We naturally gravitate in that way. That we make things about us. It's always about us. But the life of a follower of Christ, it's not about us, it's about Christ. And because it's about Christ, it's about others. Are you in awe of the giving of Jesus as a, to us sinners? All right, so that's the heart of the king. Uh, we see him keeping his word. We see him giving his way. Now we see the response of a very surprised worshiper as we see the homage to the king. First of all, about Mephibosheth, I want us to see that he is found in a hopeless situation Go on, verse 3 with me. So Ziba says to the king, there's still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Emil at Lodaber. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker to the son of Emil at Lodaber. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you the kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? All right, so the question David asked was, Is there anybody still around amongst Jonathan and his, his, his family, his, his relatives. Now, you and I, when we read that question, if you've been here for 2 Samuel, do we know the answer? Everybody nod your head, yes, because we read about it. It was a random verse in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel that we've kind of tucked away. We put it in our mind. I right, remember this guy. I think he's going to show up a little bit later. 2 Samuel 4.4. 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had his son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Israel, and that news was they were dead. So dad and grandpa, dead. They were killed by the Philistines, and his nurse took him up and fled. And you feel for the nurse, when she was taking up and running and fleeing, she fell with him. He fell down in her haste and became lame. He became paralyzed. He became a cripple. And his name was Mephibosheth. 
So why were they running? Why was she fleeing in the first place? Because he's going to potentially be killed by who? The Philistines. And if not the Philistines, we've already seen the pattern. What would David naturally do? Because that's what kings do. They're going to kill him. So what they did is they put Mephibosheth in witness protection program. Think about it. That's really what happened. We're going to hide him. We're going to tuck him away, keep him alive, because he is definitely in danger, in risk. So he's been hidden. Hardly anyone knows he even exists. He was by birth because of the fact of who Saul was, because Saul kept trying to kill David. He was an enemy of the state simply by his birth. He was a target. He was in danger. I bet I bet the moment he knew kind of the story as he got older, he probably feared for the day that happened in this passage. He probably waited for that day. I mean, if you're somebody in witness protection, and let's say you're, you're in it because of the mafia and you had news about them, every time you hear a noise late at night in your house, what are you doing? And that's kind of probably how Mephibosheth lived that fear, that sense, that vulnerability. Oh, and on top of it all, not only is he in danger because he is an enemy of the state, what is the big quality that they keep bringing up over and over in this chapter? He's crippled. He can't flee. He can't make a run for it. And we need to realize we're not talking 2022, okay? It's remarkable what medical advancements have taken place with regards to people who have handicaps. I mean, I was watching a video of of them getting even to the point where there are people who have been paralyzed who are able to walk with medical advancements. Now, they're not able to walk at the same level. They haven't been fixed or cured per se, but they're able to walk. It is remarkable. Well, that's not... The, the time period that Mephibosheth grew up in. No, you know what his option was? He, had, he pretty much had one thing he could do. What was it? Beg. We've seen it throughout the Bible. The people who are handicapped, what do they do? They're at the gate of the city and they would beg and that's what they would do for the day. And then they, somebody would have to come pick them up, help them go back to their home and then the next day. And that was his likely livelihood. Not only that, he would have been viewed as a burden on society. Some people would even consider what was wrong with him as a result of sin. Do you remember the, the gospel, the disciples? They saw a blind man, and what did they say? John 9, 2. Who sinned, this man or his parents? Because he was born blind. So I, I, I think we need to camp out just for a second as we consider Mephibosheth to understand how hopeless of a situation he was found in. He was vulnerable. It was scary. He really had no resources. He really had nobody. He was a a dead man who wasn't even walking. And that's the context that we see David coming in to do a remarkable act of grace and mercy and kindness. Why am I belaboring this point? Because you and I, we were Mephibosheth. Romans 5, 6, listen. 
For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, who would, one would die, dare even to die. But God showed his love for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. We weren't simply crippled. We were dead. We were blind. We were slaves to sin. We were enemies of God. And God came along and saved and redeemed us in Christ. Don't forget your past. You weren't just simply a little sick and you needed some medicine to kind of make you better. No. You were an enemy of God on your way to hell when God came along in Christ and saved and redeemed you? Well, do you rest in the certainty of those promises? You see that God is a keeper of his word. But not only do we see this hopeless situation we find him in, he's found with a humble spirit. Read verse eight with me. He goes on and he pays homage and he says, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? You, you know what Mephibosheth gets? He gets it. He understands the situation. He has self-awareness. There's some names that we need to pick up on this. First of all, names matter in the Bible. We know that. Mephibosheth, his name, it has some variation of from the mouth of shame, from breathing shame, from barren, uh, from, from destroying shame. It's, just, it's a name that God ultimately makes good on, the destroying of shame, but it's tied to shame. Mephibosheth, he's, he's from, from Saul. He's from the line of Saul, the, the line that consistently fought against God's king going on the throne. He kept trying to kill David. But not only that, the place he's from, Lodabur, it means no word, no thing, no pasture, barren. It's nowhere. So he's a nobody from nowhere. And the king is here to see him. It's really remarkable. And he, and, and he gets it. He understands. I, I remember... Uh, and I think most of us at some point have experienced this. Maybe it was in gym class or maybe it was at the playground. You're going to play a game and everybody lines up and there's captains. Talk about creating some emotional problems young in a child's life, right? Because like, especially if you're not the athlete, it, it starts, you start getting a little insecure, right? There's, 10 people and they get to those couple last and then, and then they get to the last person and then they're like, do we have to take them? You know what I mean? That's how he, and Mephibosheth, he gets it. He's so confused that he's picking him. You understand? Because see, I, I think what Mephibosheth is thinking is what makes the most sense, the reason that he is before the king today is what? What do you think is going to happen? He's bringing me here to do what? He's going to kill me. 
I can imagine the, the anticipation as he goes before the king. He's scared to death. He really throws himself literally at the mercy of God. He, he falls down on him. You know how difficult that would have been? He's crippled, so he would have had to even get up to the king. He falls down. It's not easy for somebody who is handicapped in both legs to be able to bow down. It doesn't go as easy as you and I who have, have, have healthy legs. He's an enemy of the state, and he bows down and worships. Because he's before the king. We see that kind of disposition of humility with Isaiah, with God, Isaiah 6, 5. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. You see, Mephibosheth, he sees the king and bows down. He's at the mercy of the king. He sees his unworthiness. This is just not self-deprecating. He, he believes it. He means it. He doesn't understand. Why is the king going to show favor on me? I'm your servant. I'm a dog. This isn't right. This isn't fair. And David had the same disposition with Yahweh two chapters ago. Remember when David is entering into the covenant with God, he says this in 2 Samuel seven eighteen. Then King David went in. He sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? David is overwhelmed by being a recipient of God's grace. And recipients of God's grace, by nature, end up having a humble disposition. They get it. They understand. This isn't fair. What is happening is not fair to Mephibosheth. He hasn't done anything. He hasn't earned favor. He hasn't done anything that the king would owe him anything. And yet, he experiences grace and mercy, undeserved, unmerited, unearned, unfair. Mephibosheth is bringing nothing to the table. And yet, he's going to be invited to the table. And I think not only are the recipients humble, grace recipients are grace dispensers. They pay it forward. That's why David is so quick to flip the script and say, you know what? Who can I bless? Who can I be an instrument of God to show kindness towards? He saw his unworthiness and he gave it to fellow unworthy people. So I want us to consider, are you humbled by God's dealings with you? Are you overwhelmed by his grace and mercy and favor? Because, friends, that should be the disposition of our hearts. If you get the gospel, if you really are getting it, it's overwhelming. It's not just, it's not just us lip-servicing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. No, it's amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me? Like me? For real? And that's what we see with Mephibosheth. He just doesn't, he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. Why, David? Why are you doing this for me? So we see the heart of the king. He keeps his word. He, he gives, givings his way. We see this homage. He's a hopeless situation. He comes with a humble heart, humble spirit. Well, let's now wrap up our time as we look at the hesed from the king, the loving kindness of God to the king. First of all, abundant 
provision. I do want to reread verse 7 and then we'll go down to 9. David says to him, do not fear for I will show kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father and you shall eat at my table always. Then he goes down to verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson and you and your sons and your daughters shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands to his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. First of all, this is shocking treatment. I think we read these things and we just move on. We don't, this is all inspiring what David is doing for Mephibosheth. And notice it is rooted once again in that word, that word I keep saying, hesed. It's a loving kindness. It is the gasoline that fuels the car. He's fueled, he's motivated, he's driven by this Hesed love. Uh, we've looked at it earlier throughout the book. Hesed is, it's a faithful, steadfast love. It's tied to a promise, but not limited to a promise. It's committed, it's reliable, it's faithful. It is deep and rich love. It's much more than emotions and sentimental. You and I, you know, we'll say like, I love this, I love that, I love you. But like, it's like deep. He's like, I, this is love in its finest. And that's what we see David being motivated by. It's the love of the gospel. Matthew, or actually Psalm 25, verse 6. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your, guess what word? Your hesed. For they have been from old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. This is the love of Jesus Christ. This is the love of God the Father to humanity. It's Rudy's motivated by it, just as David is motivated by it. Not only is it rooted in this said love, it results in action. And this is a rags to riches story. I was reading about this. A at the time, the treasurer of South Carolina kept trying to reach out to a man. And he kept getting a skeptical response from the man that he was reaching out to. So much so that the treasurer of the state said, hey, let's meet at a coffee shop. We can meet in person. Like, I'm for real. This is not a joke. This isn't a scam. He had some unclaimed funds in his name. It's not just that he had unclaimed funds. You know how many unclaimed funds he had? He had $700,000 sitting around in his name. Everybody's like, wouldn't that be awesome? There's a website you can go on. I looked, did not find 700000 I had something that I have money to, but it's like less than $10. I'm like, I don't even think I want to go through the, the process. I'll probably have to pay a fee more than the $10 to get the $10. So no seven hundred k for me. But that's kind of like the, the kind of the shocking all news that Mephibosheth is finding out about. He goes from being poor to wealthy, having nothing to having everything. From being a slave, like a servant, I'm a nobody, to having servants. You see, and this is above and beyond what David had to do. What did David promise to Jonathan? I promise I won't cut off your family's life. Translation, 
I won't, when I'm on the throne, I'm not going to wipe out your family. I'm not going to kill everybody. And if he would have done just that, not kill Mephibosheth, he would have done what he promised. He would have been faithful in the covenant. But that wasn't enough from David's point of view. He was going to do more. He was going to bless him abundantly. He was going to go above and beyond what was expected. Doesn't that sound like the gospel? Did God just simply make a way that you and I don't go to hell? Is that it? Is that all that the gospel is? Fire insurance from hell. Because of Jesus, I don't get to go to hell. No, that's one aspect of it, but it's far deeper, far more rich. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. How are you and I blessed, friends? Forgiven? redeemed. We have the presence of God in our lives with the Holy Spirit. We have access to the throne of God. Uh, We have the Holy Spirit producing fruit in our life. We're no longer slaves, but we're we're freed. We're, We're no longer enemies of God. We're family. We're friends. We're children of God. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. God has done so much more in Jesus Christ for us than simply get us out of going to hell. And what we see with Mephibosheth, it's not just, I'm not going to kill you, Philip Mephibosheth. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to treat you so great because of this Hesed love. Well, how blessed are you and I? What motivated God to do that? What motivates us? What drives us? So we see not only the abundant provision. Lastly, I want us to see the absolute protection that takes place. Read verse 12 with me. In Mephibosheth, he had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. So Mephibosheth is probably age-wise 13, 14 years old. So he's a fearful, vulnerable, crippled young man. And what seems to happen, have happened, but we, it doesn't directly say it, is remember, who is the servant of Saul? Ziba. You know what Ziba probably did when Saul died? He was very what? Opportunistic. Saul's not going to miss this stuff. He's got a five-year-old grandson who's crippled. What does he know? So what seems to have happened is Ziba's taken over Saul's stuff. He's doing pretty good. How many sons does he have in the passage? Did you read that? 15 sons? 20 servants? You notice how quick Ziba was to be able to say, yeah, there's somebody out there. His name is Mephibosheth. He's, oh, he didn't say his name, but he's like, yeah, he's at this place. He knows exactly where he is. He's pretty on top of what goes on with Saul's stuff. And then you've got David now saying, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip the script. I want you to understand something, Ziba. Mephibosheth is now under my protection. Because in all honesty, it seems like Ziba's been kind of the bully in all of this, kind of controlling and dictating. You've maybe seen that even in a school context where there's a bully, but there's always somebody that the bully's afraid of. Fact. There's always somebody a little tougher a little, little scarier. And the bully's cool, bullying the little. But once that guy comes in and says, hey, you touch him, you deal with me. All of a sudden, the bully doesn't seem that tough. 
And Ziba instantly, what does Ziba say? Sure thing, king. Sure thing. He can have my land now. I mean, Saul's land. He can, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. My 15 kids and my 20 servants are now his servants. That's awesome. Yeah, that's what happens though. Isn't it remarkable how God protects Mephibosheth, this vulnerable 13, 14-year-old crippled boy by the protection of the king of Israel? Isn't that kind of like what we have with God? Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to those, to these things? If God is for us, who can be what? Who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He has the king on his side. He has protection. Why worry? But not only does he have this protection, and it says it three, four times in our passage. Verse 7, verse 10, verse 11, verse 13. He gets to do something special. What is it? He gets to eat at my table. He gets to eat at my table. Why is that such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal? Think about it back in old school days. You're in high school. Our table's broken up. Now, some schools actually mandate where you sit. But I'm thinking back in my days, people sat in their groups, right? There was the cool table, the athletes. I remember, I'm not joking, I almost, I almost didn't make it to this day because my first day of high school. Because of cafeteria. Sat down. I was newer to the school. I was only there in eighth grade, so I got to high school. I go in and I sit down. And I just kind of sit plop in the middle of a section away from people. And I did not know that I had sat down at the athlete's table. And like the varsity, like seniors table. Football player table. And like the biggest football player, he sits down. And he looks at me and he's like, what are you doing? He's like, why are you sitting in my table, my seat? And like, I felt the nerve. I don't even know. I looked at him. I looked under the seat. I stood up and I was like, I don't see your name on it. His buddies were all like, whoa. I like literally, I'm so glad he didn't. His name was David Cox. He would have killed me. His neck was as wide as my waist. Like it would have went bad fast. And I, they started laughing and like, I did not sit there the next day. I just sat tables away. Uh, but... I, that's, I mean, that's kind of like David is letting Mephibosheth sit at the cool people's table. Like, think about this. He's this cripple. He's from the line of Saul, and he's going to sit there, and he's going to eat with, with David's son, Absalom, who's in the Bible. It says the dude was flawless. Like, he was this good-looking of a man who has ever walked on the earth. He gets to sit at the table with Absalom. He could sit at the table with Joab, who's this military warrior, the leader of David's army. He could just eat with all those. And I guarantee there's probably a part of them looking like, Why, who is, who's this dude? Why is he sitting there? And you can imagine even David saying, he's there because I said he's there. He's here with me. And it changes everything. He's the king. And he gets to be his guest. Friends, once again, it's the gospel. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You and I, as followers of Jesus, we get to sit at the cool table for eternity. We get to be there with the king. 
Revelation 19.9, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited in the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we're going to get to sit at that table for the supper. Think about it. Think of all those people that are going to be sitting at that table. There's going to be David, a man after God's own heart. There's going to be Father Abraham and many sons. He's going to be sitting there. Moses, parting the sea. He's going to be there. The apostle Paul is going to be there. Simon Peter's going to be there. Keep going through the names. And then guess what? You and I. Is that ridiculous? Joe Hillrich from Northwest Ohio? Who? He's that kid that almost got killed at one time when he stood up to the football player. Yeah, that guy. He gets to sit there with, with Paul with David, and that's the case for all of us. Because you know what? David, Moses, Paul, you and I, all of us, nobody deserves to sit at that table. And yet, because of the gospel, because of Jesus, we're safe and secure and special in his eyes. Team Hoyt. It's a racing team. I haven't checked much about it in recent years, so I'm not sure uh, how the team is. Now, we're not, when I say racing, I know some of you, uh, I'm not talking about cars. I'm talking about running, swimming, biking. Uh, it's a father-son team. Rick is the son. He suffers from cerebral palsy. He's been in a wheelchair, severely, handi- severely handicapped. Well, locally, somebody had been paralyzed and they did a fundraising race. And he wanted to run in that race. He can't run, obviously. So he convinced his dad, I want to run with you. So his dad, Dick, he ends up running with him. He was at the age of 40. They ended up having like a car, uh, like a stroller, basically. And he pushed him the whole, I think it was a 5K or, or something like that. And he ran it. And one of the things that his son said during the race was when I run, I don't feel handicapped. So the dad, he hears that. He looks at his son. He's like, I'm going to do something about this. So it's crazy. Since then, he's been in over a thousand races, 252 triathlons, 72 marathons, six Ironman triathlons. And it is a sight to watch. The dad, when he swims, he's got a raft. His son is laying in the raft, pulls him to swim. Now, in the Ironman, it's a couple mile swim. We're not talking about the length of the, the gymnasium. He swims it. After that, he gets on a bike. He rides a bike. They have a contraption where he sits in the front of his son. Now, mind you, if you've ever even had a little kid, weight thrown off when you're riding another person on a bike, and they're not pedaling, and he does that, and then at the end of that, he's ran marathons pushing his son on the car. It is emotional to watch, to see him run, swim, and bike, to do what his son can't so he doesn't feel handicapped. He does it for him. His son gets to share in the accomplishments. He's just along for the ride. Friends, that is the gospel. That is the depth of our father's love that he looked at us, he saw us crippled. He knew that we couldn't do a thing about it. And he's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do the bike. I'm going to do the swim. I'm going to do the run. I'm going to go to the cross and die on your behalf to reconcile you to me so that you will one day get to spend eternity with me. We see that in this life of Mephibosheth. 
a crippled boy could do nothing. The king comes in and says, no, I'm going to treat you as my son. Friends, that's us. A bunch of nobodies from nowhere, a burden to society, forgotten, and the king comes along and saves and spoils us. That is our story. Don't forget it. Be in awe of it, that he came and redeemed us. Needy and unworthy, he made a promise and he kept it. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God and so we are. We're gonna sing a song now to conclude our time of worship and I asked Ryan to sing for it and I wanna challenge you. It's not a song we've sung often. I, I don't even know if we've officially sung it before. We did it a couple times as like a preview but I want you to really ponder I want you to really think through the lyrics. As I sang it this week as I was listening, as I was preparing, it brought tears to my eye because the, the, the song is, How Great Is Your Love? And friends, I think we've lost the wonder of God's love. We, we kind of look at God. We look in the mirror. We don't think we're that bad. We don't think we needed that much. And hey, it was kind of nice that you saved us. Friends, we were on our way to hell. We were dead. There was no hope. And God came and saved and redeemed us. How great is the love of our Father. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now and we acknowledge that we lose focus. We forget how glorious and gracious the gospel is. We pray, God, that you would open up our eyes to that. That we would give you the, the right worship that is deserved for such an amazing a display of loving kindness towards us. Indeed, how great is your love for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we respond.